I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending May 31st. This week, we've got a dispatch from Monte Carlo about the recent Grand Prix electric vehicle race. Also, a separate report on what's going on with chips for autonomous vehicles. And we've been talking about the trade war with China from the U.S. point of view. This week, our correspondent in China discusses how China's high-tech industry thinks about the conflict. But first, Rick Merritt, our Silicon Valley bureau chief, picked up the advanced program for hot chips, an annual three-day event that's sort of the Coachella for fans of microprocessor architectures. This year, the festivities will be in mid-August on the Stanford campus. Rick has parsed the program, and he thinks the lineup signals a significant shift in microprocessor tastes. Here's Rick. The advanced program for the Hot Chips annual conference came out recently, and it's a real bellwether because it's an event put out for microprocessor architects by microprocessor architects. This year, uh, not too much of a surprise, uh, about half the papers and talks will be about AI in some form. Among the most interesting ones, Cerebrus, uh, a much-watched startup, will talk about its chip, which is using wafer-scale integration. Uh, we'll see startup Habana talk about its training chip. Intel will talk about two AI accelerators, one for inference, one for training. And there'll be a talk by UpMem, uh, one of the emerging in-memory compute architectures that could be pretty interesting. Separately, the tutorials this year are actually going to be amazingly interesting because uh, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are all going to talk about their AI hardware in the cloud. And it's pretty unusual for these companies to talk uh, about their hardware at all. And you almost never see it with them talking at somebody else's event, let alone together, so that in one day you, you get a view of what's going on with all three. So I think that's going to be a well-attended tutorial. Uh, an interesting sidelight, uh, Huawei is uh, confirmed to speak about its Ascend AI accelerator, but uh, they're still crossing their fingers that they'll be able to get visas and approvals to, to come, given the uh, U.S.-China trade wars and the way Huawei has become uh, in the midst of all that. So we'll see. BCs and servers still exist. There's still a market there, and AMD is going to give a keynote. It's going to talk about its Zen 2 x86 core, and uh, IBM is expected to talk about its Power 10 server processor. Uh, but it's it's a different day in the semiconductor industry, and you can also see that by the fact that Intel is doing four papers, I think, and two of them are on AI accelerators, one of them's on Optane memory, and a third one is on its packaging technology. Nothing on x86 chips. It's a different day in the semiconductor industry. It's a different day in Silicon Valley. And this is Rick Merritt reporting for EE Times from London. Junko Yoshida, our chief international correspondent, recently interviewed David Fritz from Siemens. Fritz manages Siemens' technology for autonomous vehicles, AVs, and Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, which you're going to hear being referred to as ATIS. Junko called Fritz to discuss the changes in automobile manufacturing, but when she found out Fritz used to work for Qualcomm, she found the one guy who might be able to answer a question that has always bugged her, which is, what's more difficult to design, a processor for smartphones or an IC for autonomous vehicles? Listen into their conversation. Many of us have spent many years covering smartphone apps processors. Well, we'll still do. 
But now we encounter a slew of brand new computational intensive big autonomous vehicle processors. Reportedly, they're designed to function as the brains in next generation cars. Boy, oh boy. But I start to wonder, which is tougher to design? A smartphone apps processor or an autonomous vehicle system on a chip? There's no contest, according to companies like NXP or Renesas, given the stringent functional safety requirements their chips must meet. The argument is valid. After all, autonomous vehicles could kill a pedestrian, but a few bugs in an app processor? Well, not so much. But look closely. The processing demand for two big chips inside the systems, one for smartphones and another for autonomous vehicles, are pretty similar. Both processors take in a huge flow of sensory data from the world. They digest it and they act on it. Where they diverge is the design and validation of these complex processors. The smartphone industry has already gone several steps ahead. Companies practice rigorous pre-silicon validation way before they start designing a system on a chip. In contrast, the automotive industry is still trapped in an arduous cycle of going back and re-spinning the chip to get it right after the chip came out. What's up with that? I sat down with David Fritz, Global Technology Manager for Autonomous and ADAS Systems at Siemens, and asked him, explain the differences in the two worlds. Hi, David. Thanks for coming to the show. I understand that you used to work at Qualcomm before joining Mentor slash Siemens. What initially surprised you about the way Automotive chip designers develop their complex autonomous vehicle SOCs. Walk us through their process and design challenges. Let me start by saying that I really can't speak to how any one company in particular develops their autonomous SOCs, only in general terms. It's important to understand that in the primarily electromechanical or mechatronic world of automotive, methodologies geared towards addressing this class of solution Model-based system engineering, for example, MBSE, have been pretty effective. Continuous integration processes, including model in the loop, software in the loop, hardware in the loop, are commonly used. The issues arise when you look into shortening design cycles to gain a shift-left benefit, while also trying to manage the complexity of consolidated ADAS or complex AV chips. Here, the mill-sill-hill models start to break down and require more sophisticated approaches. Hmm, okay. In contrast, though, how do smartphone application processor designers develop their own SOCs? Well, Junko, when you take a close look at how smartphone chipsets are developed today, those that are required to meet stringent power and performance and, and scheduling constraints while simultaneously running a full software stack. All of this pre-silicon, mind you. It's clear that automotive ADAS and AV SOCs could be designed and tested in very similar ways. The result would bring significant value to automotive chip makers and their customers. The concept of delivering use case proof points and models to customers in advance of the silicon is well understood and, and common practice for smartphone chipset makers. But the idea 
seems to be foreign to many automotive suppliers. Oh, I see. In your opinion, David, what's missing from today's autonomous vehicle SOC design process? Well, one important point to make here is that the higher the level of autonomy that's reached, the more interdependent the systems of the vehicle become. Correct decisions in an AV are highly dependent upon accurate sensing data and vehicle dynamics, as well as AI inferencing and awareness of environmental conditions. When an SOC is developed and tested independently from the rest of the vehicle, subtle issues arise that can cause accidents. This type of gap issue can be very difficult to diagnose and AV SOC designs can benefit from the pre-silicon validation methodologies pioneered by their smartphone colleagues. Thank you, David. It was very interesting. This was Junko Yoshida E-Times with David Fritz at CNES. London correspondent Sally Ward-Foxton gets all the tough assignments. Recently, she was dispatched to Monte Carlo to attend this year's E-Pre-Rally. Given a chance to peek under the hood of one of the electric cars, Sally, whose background is in electronic engineering, just couldn't resist. Here's her report. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to visit Monaco to report on the Formula E Electric Vehicle Championship. Like Formula One, Formula E is essentially a technology competition, and it basically showcases the latest innovations in powertrain components and software for electric vehicles that will eventually end up in all electric vehicles. I visited the garage for the Venturi team the day before the race. Venturi are pretty well known in the electric vehicle industry. One of their most famous projects has been to set the land speed record for electric vehicles a couple of years ago. They've had a Formula E team for several years. Now, new to Formula E this season is an entirely new car. About 80% of a Formula E car is standardised, like the aerodynamics, the wheels, the tyres, but the teams can work on the powertrain, so the inverter, the motor, the regenerative braking system, things like that. The second generation car has doubled the size of its battery to 54 kilowatt hours. So it's not as big as the 100 kilowatt hour battery in a Tesla Model S, but crucially, it means that one battery charge can last the whole 45 minute race. So no more changing cars like in previous seasons, there's no pit stop at all now. Of course, the race is all about squeezing as much as possible out of one full battery charge. Any efficiency increases from the components are obviously really important, but I was a little surprised to learn that software plays a huge role as well. Venturi's team principal, Susie Wolf, told me, The big race in Formula E is the software race. She said, Teams can update the software quickly in between races to try and finesse aspects of performance, which is especially important for the new brake-by-wire systems in the new car, which automatically balances between torque from the mechanical brakes and torque from the regenerative braking system. This was previously done manually by the drivers and they frequently lost control of the cars as a result. One of the things that's unusual about Team Venturi is it's relatively diverse. There are seven women on the team of 30, working at almost every level from team principal right down to the mechanics. This kind of ratio is practically unheard of in motorsport. I was shocked, but unfortunately not surprised, to hear Susie Wolfe describe her first press conference when she joined Venturi as team principal. She said the first question she was asked was, what makes you think you can do this job? Remember, she's had a long distinguished career as a professional racing driver. She's hardly inexperienced. Then the second question, did your husband place you in this job? Her husband is the team principal for Mercedes Formula One. She was shocked by that question, and rightly so. And the third question was, how are you going to do this job as a mother? She said that was like a slap in the face. 
It's hard to believe women are still being asked these kinds of questions in 2018 or 2019, but the world of motorsport is still very male-dominated at every level. Susie Wolfe has set up her own initiative to encourage girls to think about careers in motorsport, whether that's as drivers, engineers or mechanics, but it's clear that there's still a lot more work to do. On race day, Venturi's lead driver Felipe Massa started in fourth position, but managed to overtake due to a small mistake from the driver in front of him. Massa was able to successfully hold him off for the rest of the race to finish in a well-deserved third place. This is Sally Ward-Foxton reporting from Monte Carlo for EE Times. Next up, with the US-China trade war escalating, it's time for us to hear the Chinese side of the story. Junko Yoshida got on the horn with one of our colleagues at EE Times China. Here's Junko. It looks like neither the United States nor China is prepared to end the trade war anytime soon. Over here in the United States, we've done extensive reporting on what Americans think of this clash. We talked to economists, bureaucrats, and representatives of industry associations to figure out what's really going on. What we haven't done, though, is to reach out to our colleagues in EE Times China. Shame on us. It's time for all of us to step back and get curious about how the Chinese perceive this so-called trade war. During any crisis, each side in a conflict tends to be fixated on defending its own position. Each side feeling pressed believes there's little time or no good reason to walk in the other guy's moccasins, which poses the questions of whether the cause of this whole mess might be a glaring perception gap. Earlier this week, I got on the phone with Echo Zhao, senior analyst at EE Times China based in Shenzhen. He has the broad brush outlook our colleague Echo offered us. We've been spending a lot of ink, both on EE Times US and EE Times China, on the ongoing US-China trade war. You know, Echo, I thought it would be prudent of us to ask how you guys are perceiving this whole conflict. In order to understand the problem, I thought the first step is for us to learn how you see the unfolding situation right now. So let me ask you this first. What are you hearing from China's social media, like WeChat, Weibo, and so forth? I'm sure a lot of people in China are talking about this. What's the mood of the country like? And what are the people saying? There are some Wei media that uh, inciting national sentiment call that by a Huawei phone is paying a patriotic tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel that the whole electronics industry, including Zhen Zhengfei and Huawei, are still very calm and very uh, pragmatic. Uh-huh. In fact, Zhen thanked all uh, U.S. suppliers publicly for their support in the past right. and said he hoped that compete in a fair environment and we can't see that using Huawei products is a patriotic. Wait, wait, Echo. What do you mean by we can't say using Huawei products is patriotic? Uh, b- because he wants to compete in a fair environment and say he don't agree with some way media that uh, inciting national sentiment. He won't calm down. Yes. I so, see. I get uh, it. So you're saying 
people should buy Huawei products because they are good, not because the act of buying them is patriotic. Yes. That's what you mean. Yes, yes, exactly. In fact, she, he said he buys some iPad for his family. <laughs> so the electronics industry in China, uh, we focus on Huawei's Plan B suppliers. And I did talk to several Plan B suppliers, confirming Huawei had talked to them and gave them some very uh, stringent inspection clause. And the clause are much stricter than the U.S. suppliers. So uh, it makes them suffering while enjoying. What do you mean it makes them suffer? You mean that Chinese Plan B suppliers have to achieve a higher goal? In other words, they'd have to try harder. Yes, yes. It's very, it's very harsh. Okay. Everyone needs to survive, right? So if we cannot change the political situation, uh, then we adapt to it. Well, you guys are very flexible about that. That's uh, very commendable, I think. <laughs> but you know, Echo, we are actually very concerned. Do many people in China believe that this represents the current conflict? This represents a complete breakdown in the U.S.-China relationship in the high-tech trade. Or do you see there's still some room for negotiation? Well, uh, the situation gets worse and worse since we first talked. I know, right? yes. Uh, yeah, well, uh, CCTV said, if you want to talk, our door is open wide. If you want to fight, we will fight you to the end. Of course, Chinese people, Chinese people wish uh, there were still some room for negotiation, especially who knows the electronic industry, because it would be big lose for uh, each side. Yeah, each side loses, right? Yeah, yeah. So personally, I have no idea about the result, since I feel that Trump always has his own logic. To be honest with you, we don't really know what his logic is. That's the problem. Mm -hmm, exactly. It's great for us to have a team in China because we will be able to know your perspective on this ongoing conflict. Yes, that's great. I think maybe U.S. readers need to know what happened in China and China readers want to know what happened or what will it affect our U.S. SE vendors. Yes. So we will continue to monitor the situation and I'm sure we'll be trading stories in the meantime. Echo, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. We close with a few bits of high-tech history, events that happened in the last week of May years ago. During the last week of May in 1992, Apple introduced the Newton Personal Digital Assistant. The lessons that Apple learned from that failure were instructive when it built a product that would prove slightly more successful, the iPhone, introduced in 2007. 32 years ago this week, Star Wars debuted in theaters. And 28 years ago, on this very day in 1991, Sega released the video game Zero Wing for the Sega Mega Drive system in Europe. Years later, the game was translated into English, giving us the immortal phrase, All your base are belong to us. And that was your weekly briefing for the week ending May 31st. 
I'm Brian Santo. Catch us here next week at EE Times On Air.